And wow. Thank you again, Kevin Carter, for producing our theme music. And welcome, everyone, to episode 36 of Room of Requirement. I am Kamala Shroud, one of your co-hosts, and with me, as always, is... Miracle Jones. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to reason and resilience in the time of Trump. Reason and resilience, <laughs> yeah. speaking of which, how are you doing, man? I'm good, you know. I'm, I'm actually, uh, you know, very good. I've been doing a lot of freelance work and, sure. and reading a bunch and writing a bunch. Uh, and the weather's kind of turned to where it's like about 40 degrees every day, which is manageable. It's good for February. So. Yeah. I feel I feel like I'm I feel like I'm gonna make it. I feel I see the other side. <laughs> uh, but I have one question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, and it's an important question for everybody out there. Yeah. Did you get a flu shot yet? I did not. Ah, you son of a bitch. <laughs> no, no. Why not? Tell me why you haven't gotten a flu shot yet. Um, I don't uh, generally get flu shots. Okay. Uh, so I for years I didn't. I worked at home. Right. Uh, and then so I. I had the advantage of being able to blame anything I got in terms of a communicable disease on my wife. Right. She was the only contagion, the only <laughs> vector of contagion, because I didn't see anyone ever. Right. right. Um, I so in general, I just haven't pulled. Uh, I haven't gotten a flu shot in years and years and years. I don't. I'm not sure. I think they're like ten, twenty percent effective. I'm happy to have my body try to shrug off immunity. Um, in its own kind of special nature way. I don't know. It's a lot of like, it's a lot of laziness. And yeah. also I, I, I am, you know, relatively healthy. So there's not a real reason to get a flu shot. And so you have gotten a flu shot? Yeah, I got one this year because it seems like it's reaching pandemic levels. And it's like, I've got, I've got like the maximum amount of Facebook friends. Sure. You know, as a result of like years of self-promotion. But uh, so I've just been seeing like, all the like people just going down and i've actually seen people die on facebook yeah i saw like this one lady like who's a writer in california she's got the flu and she was just like going in and it's like i don't know like what's going on and then i just saw like later it's like you know this lady had got she had double pneumonia and just like died it's really bad out there like i'm just everybody and it's gonna be all the way through april it's gonna be a really bad flu so i think everybody should go out there and get a flu shot yeah but that way my mom wins <laughs> my mom has been nagging me to get a flu shot since 1983 all right well get water don't tell anybody you don't have to say you got I a can't flu lie shot. to my mother <laughs> God. But i can tell her i haven't got a flu shot yet with maximum glee. I, I rarely, I rarely get a flu shot, right? Like, I only get one when it's, like, bad, when I see it's, like, approaching, like, pandemic okay. levels. If I don't <laughs> die between now and when I, my next doctor's appointment is, which is, you know, in a few weeks, uh, I may get a flu shot. How yeah, about yeah, that? you go in. Just, they'll, they're probably going to make you get one. They're making, like, babies get them right now. It's the All thing right. to do. It's the it's the, oh, it's I did the Charleston. Actually, <laughs> I, I did, um, I, speaking of which, I actually did listen to a podcast I really like called Backstory, and they talk about the Spanish flu, the misnamed Spanish flu. Sure. Which killed... Worst plague of our, well, modern, modern times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting. The one thing that I learned is don't be afraid of quarantine. <laughs> oh, God, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when it comes to that and you have a little <laughs> yeah. community meeting in your little town hall, go for the quarantine. Yeah. Those are the those are the <laughs> communities that survive. Yeah, it's true. Uh, like, during the Black Plague, like, Venice was uh, one of the towns that uh, was the most robust as far as surviving the plague, right? And it was because 
they wouldn't let if you showed up on a ship in Venice, they put you on a plague island with, with all the other people that have the plague. So if you didn't have it on your ship, you were probably going to get it on the island and die. Sure. And then if you if it showed up in the, in Venice at all, if anybody had symptoms of it, they boarded people in their homes <laughs> to just die or like survive, you know. But it's like sorry. Uh, Giovanni, uh, yeah. here's some food. We're we're boarding you in, and we'll see you in the spring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, but they, you know, they're 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 uh, this cruel uh, Venetian uh, method kept their numbers really high as far as people who lived through the plague. Uh, anyway, everyone should get a flu shot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. Uh, anything else? Other, any other PSA you want to no, engage in? It's, it's for you. It's not a PSA. I mean, I just worry. Like, did Angela get one? No. Really? Yeah. You guys, like, come on. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're birds of a feather. We just don't really believe in getting flu shots. What about other? You're not like anti-vax, are you? What? You're not like no. Anti-vax. I'm pro-science. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a personal thing. Like, yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't, I've never really needed a flu shot. You know. So anything else you want to talk about? No. Goddamn it. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, uh, do you mind if I just spit in this cup? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to move on to politics, etc. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah, politics. Okay. All right. So uh, I think the first thing we wanted to talk a little bit about was that I. Uh, maybe we want to talk about Fire and the Fury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you finished reading. I finished Fire and the Fury. Um, it is a quick read. I have mixed feelings about it. I think you are an uh, enthusiastic endorser of it, and I find it much more problematic. An entertaining read, but I feel like it's a, it's maybe not worth everyone's time. I thought it was well-written, and I think that's rare. I think he has a good turn of phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's rare in the uh, field of political hackery. But I also think that he's not the he's not a political hack, right? I think he is a gossip. And so, like, what he is good at are things like a turn of phrase, right? Or being able to capture a moment, right? It's a really... It feels like a sort of shallow, gossipy L.A. or New York on... You, profile of some like weird niche right it depends on what you feel the power of storytelling is and i find that to be deeper usually than empirical journalism i feel that it lasts longer and has more of downstream effects like if you're able to capture the narrative of something it can be permanent uh and i think it was a great encapture i mean what so what were, what were your problems with that but i think it was in general it was, It'll be the story of Trump's first year. I, I, I feel that there are few narratives to challenge it out there, competing ones. Well, so I th- there's a difference between saying that the narratives, right, it's a dominant narrative. Yeah. I th- think that's probably right. I just think that either as history or as journalism, I think it's poorly either sourced or in some ways substantiated, right? right. So it really does feel like he's... This person who's recording everything is sort of this fly on the wall that's just right. everywhere. Yeah. It's not clear who's talking to him, what he heard firsthand, what he heard first, sorry, what he heard secondhand, what he heard thirdhand, uh, you know, what is 12 deep rumor, right? And things like that. I find that really hard to forgive in terms of how, how impressionistic a lot of this stuff is, right? So I think it's a really interesting profile of Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, Steve Bannon's time in the White House. Yeah, That's yeah. what it is, really. Yeah. So he, if they had cut out more or less the profiles of everyone else, yeah. he would have had a book about three-quarters of the length, and it would have still been fascinating. And I think that's what makes it... It's Steve Bannon's impression of Donald Trump, right? Sure. 
upon occasion, right? So filtered through somebody who really understands Rupert Murdoch, right? Like, so he's a Rupert Murdoch biographer first and foremost, right? And so he's you know using his connections with the right wing media machine of Fox News in order to kind of filter one way or the other gossip both from both directions from the right and the left yeah I just find I find that the main effort of the book is in fact filtering gossip and rumor right. and I've and there is so much that's left on the table right I mean there are substantial debates and what he's really talking about mostly are sort of personality quirks and as if this was actually the Manhattan Tea Party or I don't know a Manhattan like chatter party or something like that. Uh, so there, there's a sort of deliberate superficiality and gossipiness to it, and I think that's that that I thought was frustrating. Yeah, I, I agree with you that that is true and frustrating. However, I think the main point of the book there are two points. I think it was to to create this master narrative that I believe will stick, but it was also to ruin friendships and alliances. I feel like every phrase, every like piece of gossip in that book was sinister. Uh, and planted strategically in order to make people not trust each other, to to create to 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 so discord, so discord to to increase the rifts that already existed. Well, I think the the one thing that it did actually lay forth in terms of factuality or, or some sort of of uh, sort of weaving together some sort of historical narrative is the fact that I got a much better feel of who was leaking what. Right. Yeah. I think he did a good job of sort of asserting that. Right, I think it was a chronicle of leaks, right? Who was using what part of the media in order to get their message out? I thought that was interesting, and that's actually good reporting. Mm-hmm. And in the way it was good reporting, because up until that time, people had different pieces of it, but putting that together, I thought was interesting. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It's a powerful narrative. I just, I really doubt it. And I also, one of the things that really compromises how strong I should buy into that narrative is the idea that he's obviously got a lot of exposure or a lot of access to Steve Bannon mm-hmm. and almost no access to other people, like really powerful people in the cabinet. And like he doesn't know the whole military cordon, right? Like he doesn't, there is no James Mattis on on the record or, or even, you know, General Kelly, right? Like, I mean, there's no, these are big people in the cabinet now. They were at the time. Um, at least Mattis was, and there's absolutely not a peep from them, right? So we don't know necessarily know what's going on with Rex Tillerson, um, any other part of the cabinet that isn't sort of the bigger per- media personalities of Javanka and Bannon. So he has someone on the, on the inside with Javanka. He's got access to Bannon, and that's that. I, I would just, I would say it's a R, the entire book was an RNC product, uh, like it was a previous Katie Walsh like takedown of both of all three other kind of forces the trump himself force okay the bannon force and then the jarvanka democrats right okay so i, I, I think that but is that's the, leaving a substantial part of the bureaucracy that isn't talked about right so right uh, uh mattis yes those the new people that have taken over cone like right. what happened but to the commerce secretary yeah, yeah like all these that things. is a, that's the 2018 white house right? well mattis was always a factor right but he feels he feels completely able to run and prosecute the America's myriad wars on his own with few oversight from the supposed commander-in-chief, which is how the right likes it, and I think that will continue. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair. Um, So two weeks out or three weeks out since you've read the book, do you have any other thoughts? Because I think that a lot of people have finally read it and are commenting on the book. 
Yeah. And, and has anything changed your mind, or have you gone back and thought about it more? I think it completely did its job of sowing the division between Bannon and Trump that will ultimately kind of excise this Bannon-esque rhetoric from the Trump administration, which will be great for the Trump administration. Uh, and I think it's already proven to you know, be working. I think Trump is more on message. I think the, his babysitters have, have complete control over him now. And okay. I think it's got in his head where now he feels like he needs to seem presidential and like he's a, a reader and decider and thinker. <laughs> he's, he's, he's approaching Bush levels, uh, George Bush Jr. levels of uh, intellectual uh, insecurity. Uh, <laughs> and you can just see it in everything he does. I think I have a hard time using whatever the book wanted to tell me about the Trump administration as some way of analyzing what the Trump administration is doing right now. So that's the problem. Like, I don't find myself being like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah the, no, that's that, fair. Yeah, once, because the book ends with the t kind of the takeover of, of Tillerson, Madison, Kelly, right? Right. And now we have, there's no, there are, who aren't leaking, right? right? They're not leaking at all. So we have no idea now kind of what the aims and goals are. Yeah. To, which is, it's frustrating. Right. I actually think in some ways, I've seen, I've been reading a fair amount of commentary on the right, who obviously really hate the book, um, Sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the not. Not not for the right reasons. Um, I think in particular, Michael Wolff has sort of shot himself in the foot about accusing Nikki Haley about having an affair with Donald Trump. Like, it's it's just a weird thing to assert. Um, his book sales were doing just fine. He didn't need to throw extra gossip in the mill. But, but I, one of the things that I think actually comes off in the book, and this is why I'm surprised people hate it as much, is Donald Trump comes off sort of as an idiot man-child, but also funny. And actually charming at times, right? Like, he's got the best lines by far of anyone in the book, right? I think there were very few times in my life that do I actually, like, laugh out loud when I'm reading a book. And they were off Donald Trump's lines because they're so weirdly, bizarrely funny from right, from left field that I think uh, he actually comes off as more charming than you would think in this book that's supposedly a takedown joke. Yeah, and also less sinister. Yeah, so, uh, you, you, you hapless. Get, yeah, like tofu, like in his uh, yeah uh, attachments. Yeah, I actually things. read the book and had slightly more sympathy for Donald Trump after sure. reading the book. Yeah, yeah, you just see how he's just no, <laughs> he just needs someone to take care of. Him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I am I am shocked that it wasn't taken up more by the right as like a product of like everybody be cool. Like, yeah, this guy just he sucks for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. All right, uh, anything. <laughs> else about fire and fury i uh, no, i await a book that kind of builds on it uh, uh, that tells us more about what we're now looking at right someone who's actually disciplined enough to use michael wolf's interviews yeah as primary sources to actually wave a narrative that is somewhat more reliable right but i mean you know as far as like you're not going to get accurate history as it's happening you're going to get gossip right? yeah and that's kind of I felt I found this to be a work of genius in that, in that <laughs> it's sort of sort of like a, a French style like dangerous liaisons like sure. piece okay. of court intrigue I that, feel like you're giving it way too much credit I don't, I don't know it, is, it is the one book that the left read yeah right. yeah yeah and I think I think it's gonna I think it's gonna persist and I, I, we'll see like okay. I, mean, I think it will be uh, a vocabulary word in 100 years this will be like the you know, Uncle Tom's cabin of the okay. Trump administration. Okay. It like trivia. Yeah. It'll be a trivia question. Trivia question. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I guess we'll move on. Um, <laughs> what else do we want to talk about? Uh, do you want to spend 
four minutes on the Nunez memo? Yes, go. <laughs> four minutes. Uh, what do you think about the Nunez memo, Camelesh? I am surprised that it is was allowed to be released because it's kind of an embarrassment as far as I can get. Yeah. I, it's really one of those things. I, it's rare that you've seen centrist Republicans be like, okay, I guess we have to let this go and then kind of slowly subtly walk back from what it <laughs> steaming pile of crap that the party delivered on the public sphere did the nunez memo convince you uh, a liberal democrat mm -hmm. that carter page should not have been investigated by the fbi not at all oh well then i guess it didn't do its job so really? moving yes. on right. <laughs> yes that's exactly what it was entailing yes. yeah yeah so it was a complete you know, waste i mean it was fascinating that they thought this would have an effect well so I think this is actually a pretty much a sign of bad decision-making yeah. up at the top, where I think it fed into El Presidente's sense of agreement and, and conspiratorial thinking, all these like poorly thought-out narratives, and so he really went with it. And I think the Republicans in charge effectively said, we can do this, but this is a bad idea, and they let him have his way because it was, I think there was hell to pay if they couldn't. Uh, if they didn't actually let this go through. They slow walked it to the release and they walked away from it. And that's about as much as you could have hoped for them yeah. in that situation. I actually thought that the way that at least some people on the right or the Republican Party came out as being in support of the FBI, I actually, I'm seeing that oper or that set of opinions actually cleave the Republican Party from whatever I can tell, right? So Ben Shapiro kind of defended the the memo this uh, today, um, certainly uh, different types, parts of the party, the, of all places, uh, Red State, which is a part, uh, which is a, I guess an online blog that I read, it's firmly in support of the FBI on this case, in this case. Uh, so I, I think actually the Republican Party or Republican voices have really divided. I'm not seeing that many people, even on the respectable Trumpista side of things, defend the Donald Trump's assertions. Yeah, because they're crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, moving on. <laughs> that was less than four minutes. You want to talk about it for another two minutes? Let's just say Nunez. Nunez. Right over Nunez. Okay, let's, let's move on, because it's not really not that interesting a point. I yeah. feel like it's a... Uh, it's It'll be interesting to see what the fallouts are, whether or not there's a follow-up in terms of more memos, whether or not this is just a disinformation campaign or a type of information-numbing campaign. Yeah, the uh, revelation that Peter Strzok or whatever was the one who drafted the, uh, reopened the email, the Hillary email investigation, really fucked the Republicans over. That, yeah. was, that was the interesting talking point, yeah. right? These two people having an affair and all their texts. Yeah. That, that was too bad because they could have gone somewhere with that, right? Like, I was compelled by that. They seemed like a love-struck, you know, like, duo who... Partisans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You yeah. can make a movie out of that, but unfortunately he was the guy that fucked over Hillary Clinton directly, so he will not be part of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's talk about immigration. Okay. So there are some new things coming to the floor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the I guess the funding deal goes through Friday or so, the 8th? Yeah, that's roughly when scheduled, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the two weeks that we've been supposed to be talking about immigration we've been talking about Devin Nunes so now it's crunch time again right and what has happened <laughs> uh, I think supposedly they're hammering out something right yeah. that they have a, a clique of about 20 or 30 senators yeah. that 
have some sort of compromise on board. So I'm not exactly sure what that compromise looks like. It seems that there's a sort of a centrist group that can maybe put forth something that looks like a compromise. So that's the Senate, though. So there are a number of stumbling blocks from there, right? So whether or not it gets brought up in the House, whether or not it can pass the House, if both, whether or not that it'll survive the reconciliation process, and then on top of that, whether or not Donald Trump will sign it, right? And then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like from here that the Democrats are in better position than they were two weeks ago. The Trump administration kind of owns DACA at this point. Right. Uh, and, you know, they have their pillar, you know, their four pillars or whatever that they want, mm-hmm. uh, three of which are insane, and the fourth of which is DACA. So. Right. <laughs> it looks like that's the one we're going to go for. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, the, the, so there's the McCain-Coons bill, which... Uh, it was kind of great, which just looks at you know it looks at extending DACA and then uh, offers a fact finding commission for border security, which is my favorite political maneuver. Right. The introduction of a fact finding committee. To well, like, <laughs> yeah. Second only to the blue ribbon committee. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. For doing jack shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was a nice fuck you. But what it looks like the House and the Senate are trying to hammer out is a, a deal which raises. Uh, defense and domestic spending uh, caps in order to, you know, have something that would you'd be a, a, a fool and a communist to vote against, right, if you're the president, because it's, it's, you'd be voting against the military. So it looks like they're going to try to do them that way, right? Yeah. Like, why would the president vote against more military spending, right? And yeah. then that is terrible, but that is also probably the best you're going to get from the Trump administration, right? Right. Kicking the bucket down the road is yeah. just about the most we can hope from. Right, that's 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 great because you know any kind of immigration reform at this point with the the three other pillars are asinine and cruel. So <laughs> th- we should uh, wait. What are the four pillars? Uh, so the four, four from the State of the Union address. Right? Okay, right. Uh, Sadly, didn't use five pillars. <laughs> yeah, you know you'd have the tithe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Visit to Mecca. Yeah, exactly. Sure, <laughs> begins with Donald. Um. No, so it's then the inter-chain migration, mm-hmm. removal of the visa lottery, the wall, yeah. and and then DACA. Yeah. So, so do you? What's going to happen to? Do you think uh, chain migration slash visa lottery? Uh, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> <laughs> Policies stand as they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think those three pillars, the three pillars that are not DACA, yeah. should be Trump's Guantanamo Bay, right? It's just a uh, sort Closing of Closing Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. yeah, political albatross that just drags him down. Yeah, forever. because nobody wants it's just not going to happen. He doesn't have the power to do these things. Yeah without Congress, and Congress is just kind of always going to be like, meh, yeah. it doesn't hurt us, so you can just keep yelling about it if you want, but it's not going to happen. So uh, so let me ask you this. Is there a position of compromise that you think the Democrats should take? So one of the things is that the party itself has gone way to the, I guess, left. Mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, sort of a, I've seen it described as a maximalist position on immigration. Is there any piece uh, that, is there any ground on which you think they should compromise? And let me ask that same question, but if, for example, there was just another president, like if there was just another Republican president, like if it was Romney or if we got Jeb Bush or something like that. If I were the right, 
this is the policy I would propose. Uh, I don't know if it's a compromise, but it is lawful evil as opposed to chaotic evil, and it would be one for one refugees for illegal immigrants. So I would look at the world at large, Syrian refugees, Honduran refugees, Haitian refugees, and I would say America has a duty, an obligation, a Christian duty to take in refugees, but we can't take in everybody. We can't house the world. So we want a one-for-one plan, refugees for illegal immigrants, right? And we'll start icing illegal immigrants for every refugee we take in, which we want to do because we're good old USA, right? But that is not going to be there. Yeah, that seems ridiculous and fanciful. Right. Republicans are even more afraid of fucking refugees because they're from countries that are in peril, right? Right. That have problems. I think that the Republican Party is divided within itself about immigration. And the stronger voices are very much either anti-immigration or restrictionist. I think that's a pleasant way of describing where they are. But I think there's a core of the Republican Party that's pro-business that will never be anti-immigration to the extent that the that something like a steve miller will like but how long are they going to stay republican you think but do you do you think they'll actually come over to the democrats i think they already kind of have i think the suburban college educated pro-business wing uh secretly like support democratic initiatives these days to the extent that they're civil society initiatives though they may continue to vote republican if they vote which they probably don't because it's depressing right now. They're the kind of people that didn't vote for Roy Moore leading to Doug Jones' wedding, right? They're the, yeah. they're the low turnout Republicans, right? Yeah, I think there's I think there's room to, for compromise on the Democratic position where there is no reason... There, I mean, one of the things you could have always said, right, was that you would reduce certain types of... If they really hated the lottery, you could reduce it by 50%, but then just bring in more Im- like legal immigrants, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, there's And there are ways that, like talk about it I, I feel like because the democrats are out of power they sort of uh, it's weird for them to have sort of talking points about extreme uh re- not relatively extreme positions strong positions that don't allow for compromise right because at some point if should they come back in power they have to have some sort of room to compromise i understand that they're sort of in the woods they're you know out of power and to such a degree that they may not it's easy for them to be ideological but it's interesting that the party platform, as it were, has generated, has effectively become this very, very, very uh, pro-immigrant position. That's not necessarily true to their roots, right? Yeah, I mean, to the roots of... Even 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I'm I'm happy about that. I'm glad there's a maximalist immigrant party now, because it's weird that there wasn't. I mean, it it seems uh, like there's a lot to be gained from embracing the thing that makes America different, the one thing that is exceptional about America, <laughs> you know. Well, and Canada. <laughs> and Canada to a lesser extent, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, because who wants to live in Canada? <laughs> so I cold. mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So cold, so yeah. cold. Um, where, do, where do you think things are headed at this point? Like, do you think there's going to be a shutdown? Do you think, uh, do you think Trump's going to turn down uh, do you think he's not gonna he's gonna squat on something and, and just start deporting dreamers? So I think what'll happen is that the, it depends on wh- how the Democrats play things, right? So yeah. I'm not sure that the shutdown looked that great for them, mm-hmm. but if they can maneuver this so that they have something that they gain, uh, things could look good for the Democrats. I'm 
I don't know. Maybe it's really hard to figure out whose political narrative triumphs out of these negotiations. One real possibility, and this goes back to the idea around the Nunes memo, is that there are certain possibilities that allow the bad decision-making process of the Trump administration come to the forefront, right? So it, no matter what, he ha- if they pass legislation, especially about immigration, Donald Trump has to sign it, and there are plenty of scenarios where he just doesn't want to sign it, yeah. and then you'll have a showdown. And I think that can that could break two ways. I, I mean, I think that'll really strengthen him with his base, but I think if it's seen, whatever he's not refusing to sign is seen as sort of a moderate compromise, then I think it's going to look really bad. So there's there are a number of pieces that I don't know how well they're going to fit, and I think it can break a number of ways. And the Democrats could screw this up too, so... Yeah, I fundamentally feel like the Republicans and Democrats conspiring to get Trump to sign a piece of DACA legislation without the wall breaks the Trump administration and yeah. will be good for both sides. Yeah, I, I believe they so. Can, I think they can engineer that. I think they. I think they may be able to engine. I think. I think it's going to be hard to get that that through the House. So that's the problem. Uh, I think that's it for immigration. Yeah. Um, did you have anything for outside the bubble? Um, yeah. So uh, I did actually want to talk a little. Well, really quickly. There's, so there's a combination of outside uh, the bubble and uh, random shit. So okay. uh, there is a guy I listen to or follow on Twitter, and he runs a podcast uh, among him and his sort of conservative uh, political writers or political a- analysts. Uh, but it's all about music. And uh, <laughs> okay, and uh, it is uh, so he they do deep dives like it's an hour and a half long about one band um, and th- each each episode or? each episode and that band is Rush every <laughs> time <laughs> every single time so um, and uh, it's interesting because you know you I think we tend to think about things in terms of political filters or political affiliations but their music taste runs deep and it's good at least in my i find myself agreeing with them uh they just did an episode i think the latest episode is about the monkeys okay and it's really really good and they come off as both knowledgeable and they have uh it's usually two guys who one's for the national review and the other one's um conservative but from another organization and they get in a third political writer of various affiliations that all they do is talk about music. As What's this podcast called? Uh, it's called Political Beats. All right. All right. I would this highly sounds actually awesome. <laughs> I, I highly recommend the Monkeys episode. For you, they have a whole episode on Beck. Yeah. Terrifying. I have to listen to it. Yeah, it's, it's good. They're, they're yeah. a solid a bit about Beck. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they talk about, and they go from album to album to album, so it's chronological. Um, they also had a pretty good one about the replacements. and they The replacements? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very good. Um, so, political beats. It doesn't come out. I think it comes out once every two weeks or something like that. It's not that frequent, but it's long. And so, if you want deep dives into music, um, yeah, it's always the saddest thing when Republicans like reveal their favorite bands and then those bands turn against them. That's like the saddest <laughs> thing. I always feel bad. I feel like they should get a pass from like you know. <laughs> it's like if Paul Ryan says he loves Rage Against the Machine, like come on. Like, yeah, just, just just let him have. Let it. him have that. It's you don't so have sad. to like. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I always feel for that. Yeah. yeah so one of the things that uh, there's a political writer I like, uh, Seth Mandel. He's conservative columnist or editorial editor, and we have. Um, we are. I'm the. Only, he's the only other person I know on Twitter who really loves this one band I really love, and so yeah, it's great. It's great. We'll t- uh, we've had a back and forth about 
about this band. It's great. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite go-to uh, uh, conversation uh, squasher when you find yourself with somebody whose political views you uh, disdain or that you know will lead to a horrifying conversation? I don't have those. You don't have it. You just yeah. go into it. So there's there are uh, there are two ways I deal with that. Yeah. So I either try to sympathize and talk to them in a way that I um, like a child. <laughs> no, I, I I'll try and talk to them. Um, so if it's a political belief that I don't have, yeah, then I then I really do try to dig in and, yeah, and yeah. sympathize. Yeah, just want to get to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be like, okay. Well, what are you talking about? Yeah, or yeah. and I and I'll, I won't be I won't be antagonistic. If it's something that bothers me. Um, then I will I will throw down and I will argue about it. And so um, and it's I find myself arguing more with sort of uh, like bourgeois leftists, right. which is an opinion set that I find really annoying, than say conservatives uh, run of the mill conservatives. Because I you know, I'm from North Carolina, I ran into this. I actually had like a four hour um, flight with this grandma in Canada. She was staunchly like conservative and that was back in the day and she didn't believe in immigration sure. or, and so i had that conversation <laughs> and i was like okay whatever I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll see how it goes and yeah, I, yeah. so i i think it's it's worth it to learn to pl- like both argue and learn how to just roll with it i don't know if i've ever felt like i need to kill the conversation anytime i i'm happy to talk about politics one way or the other for me it's religion Oh, yeah, I yeah. love a conversation. Yeah, about so I just turned it to a religion because I feel like people. It's like, so but that alienates leftists as much as it does. Yeah, that's fine. That shuts down that conversation <laughs> because no one wants to talk about God. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't find myself needing. Maybe I just don't have that many conversations. I don't feel myself needing to exit a conversation. I would rather argue about religion than politics. How's that? It's more interesting, and it, like I feel like it get people. It gets people more where they actually are, and they're like. Solely. I feel like when you engage about politics, you're both trying to learn from someone, and I always feel like it's more of a sympathetic exercise than an antagonistic exercise, unless there's someone who's just very strident in their opinions, and I feel like that, then I have to, yeah. I don't really learn from people's political opinions very much about where they're coming from or how they... Uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, All right, so... Uh, yeah, so should we go to Economics Corner real quickly? Yeah, so ex- uh, Economics Corner. So it's been an interesting couple of days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the market has seen some real volatility yeah, uh, yeah. starting on Friday where uh, the Dow fell by 666 points. Yeah, so so I have a question for you. Sure. So the talking point I have heard from uh, pundits is that the Dow has fallen uh, because the wages have gone up. The, the, the idea that wages will go up, right? Mm. Does that make any sense? So there is a torturous set of logic here. Okay. So what you could say is that, some people argued this, is that the wages and the labor market are doing relatively well, um, and that in itself signals the fact that the Fed is going to hike interest rates at a higher rate, right. and that's going to, and when you hike, when you have a, a quicker schedule in terms of interest rates than stock, the stock market tends to take a hit. Sure. So, and they and they could also just be betting that that kind of scenario also shortens the uh, the economic recovery. So there is an argument for it. I don't know if I believe it, 
uh, I actually think that it, in some cases it has to do with politics, right? The only really bad piece of news was that the, the Nunes memo that came out on Friday, right? Mm. So I actually think that there's maybe the market is, is willing to say, okay, well, this is the end of the Trump train, right? And we just need to take our money and go. So My theory is that January was so fucking insane and people made so much unearned money that they just wanted to get liquid so they could buy bonds on the idea that the Treasury would be raising the interest rate. Right. So that doesn't necessarily mean that bonds are going to be... Uh, bonds can also take a hit when the Treasury raises interest rates. Yeah. But, I mean, the idea is that... You, yeah, you want to move more towards cash. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in general, the stock market, especially under Trump, has actually enjoyed quite a, a significant rise. And one could have argued six months ago, as I did, but also especially in January where things looked really overvalued. So you were really forego it. You were really hoping that the stock market would continue to rise if you were continuing to buy into it. So there just could have been an over overvaluation bubble. Um, and that caused a pretty dramatic pullback. But it's one of the things that was pretty clear is what... Um, Last year was actually a pretty steady rise for the stock market. There wasn't a lot of volatility. Yeah. And these things come in cycles, and it seemed very clear that 2018 was going to be more volatile in terms sure. of the stock market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. January was crazy. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you did... Yeah, I mean, there, there are certain things that looked a little bubbly. Yeah. Um, uh, especially around Bitcoin and things like that. Yeah, yeah there yeah. are certain signals that things are a little bit bubbly. I don't know if we've actually entered into a proper correction, right? So we had a rebound today. Uh, that was pretty significant. So I don't know. Um, I think it's an interesting time to be uh, involved in the markets or interested <laughs> in the markets. But I also think that it's, I'm not clear exactly how this is going to play out for presidential messaging, right? So <laughs> sure. he, he, so if we enter into any sort of sustained uh, bull market or if we don't, if we fall off our peaks, it's really hard to see how the stock market, at least in the short term, is a talking point for El Presidente. How... Uh useful is the stock market for assessing the health of an economy, uh, the American economy. For the American economy. Interesting. So it's not great, but it's not as bad as other things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are fundamental indicators that I would pay much more attention to, um, but they're not as sensitive and they uh, they don't come out as often, right? The so price of flu shots. <laughs> the price of flu shots, <laughs> zero. <laughs> um, I would always play, I mean, fundamentally, you're, the economy lives and dies on the unemployment rate. Right. So that's something that's important. Um, I think that the labor market is kind of the, really the, one of the more important indicators. I mean, GDP also really matters, right? We actually had a weak number uh, in, in Q4 uh, for GDP. I'm surprised they didn't get as much attention. So there are signs that maybe, and I think this also um, may have played into, the, into what happened in January or in the past couple of days. There are just maybe signs that... Uh, the Trump train is coming to a close or like this magical, the relatively strong run that the economy has had over the past three or four quarters uh, since Trump was elected, uh, maybe losing a little steam. I like to think of it as the Obama paper airplane, but <laughs> you can call it the Trump train if you like. While Trump was in office, the economy has done reasonably well. Yeah. Um, well you know, a lot of that doesn't have to do with Trump. I would say some of it does, right? So a deregulatory administration is going to probably help business out, yeah. at least in the short term, right? Anytime you have tax cuts, that's going to help business out. In the short term, it just depends on whether or not the economy can handle the, the shift in, in who's paying for what. So, you heard it here first. Kamala <laughs> says, get everything into Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin. Um, yeah. 
that there's actually there was actually a pretty good joke around uh, floating around on Twitter where they were talking about there has been no absolutely no fall in the stock market when you measure it by Bitcoin, the real currency, as opposed to the <laughs> fake fiat money, <laughs> fiat the dollar. Money. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's something to keep in mind. If you look at the long-term aims of Trump as getting us off fiat currency and into <laughs> Bitcoin, right? Sure. Tanking America so that no longer is the dollar the reserve currency for the world, but instead it is Bitcoin. I would say everything's proceeding according to <laughs> plan. Yes, yeah. moving along smoothly. Yeah. Um, I think that brings us to the successful conclusion of another room of requirement. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us, and thank you to Kevin Carter for producing our outro music. Uh,